This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we continue our journey through Galatians by completing the fourth chapter, talking about the importance of covenants and how they are relevant to different audiences. All right. So Paul has explained to us the purpose of the law, kind of the part it played. He's been talking to us about the calling that the Jews have in the world. But Paul is going to keep moving. He has to keep moving. All this this train of thought keeps raising questions that Paul has to keep answering. And so he continues to speak to the God-fearing Gentiles in Galatia who are tempted to convert to Judaism and having made the case that in this new Jesus reality, everybody who wants to have faith in Christ is a child of Abraham, Benai Avraham, through faith. There is no distinction between gender, social status, Covenantal belonging, he said, no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. He then wants to know why they would exchange this. So Paul's, Paul's kind of going in and out. He's got these waves. He's like really frustrated and angry. And then he's like, all right, hold on, let's talk about this. And then he gets fired up again. He's like, so why in the world? He's about ready to get fired up again. So go ahead and give us the first little bit of what we're looking at here, which is not the beginning of chapter four, but about eight verses in. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. So Paul refers to their former days. Remember, I think an episode or two ago, we talked about that quote unquote Gentile sinners about this reference to Gentile sinners uh, that we said wasn't derogatory, but more of just an idea of a category. Paul refers to their former days as Gentile sinners and says that they were slaves to men in this pagan Roman world when you were a slave to Caesar or the upper class or all kinds of people who would have been above you. Slaves to men, men who thought themselves to be gods, the definition of Hellenism. But by nature are not gods. They're not. They're just men and women. But now, if they choose to be burdened by this worldview of those in the circumcision party, they will be turned into the same old situation. They will find themselves enslaved to the ways of men and not of God. Paul then pleads with them to be open-minded and consider what he's saying. He tells them to become like him, just as he did when he brought them the gospel. He humbled himself and met them on their turf, joining their conversation in order to express the gospel to them. Go ahead and read about that, Brent. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? So apparently it was because of some kind of illness, some kind of physical ailment that Paul spent so much time in Galatia and ended up teaching the gospel to them. He asked them to consider those days when they spent that time together. He reminds them of how well they treated him, even though he was a burden to them in his illness. They treated him with gracious hospitality. The hallmark, by the way, of who, Brent? Abraham. Abraham. They were being children of Abraham as Gentiles. He asked them why they have lost this posture with him. Why this change in heart? Why do they treat him differently? 
He's simply bringing them a reminder of the same gospel he preached before when their lives were forever changed together. Go ahead, Brent. Give me some more. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Perplexed, Paul says. Another word. You foolish Galatians. I am perplexed. Frustration dropping out of Paul's... uh, seeping out of his voice here. Paul refers to those in the circumcision party, and he speaks of their intentions. They wish to divide those God-fearing children of Abraham and make them into what they are. He says that they are zealous for them in their hopes that they might become zealous for their cause of Shammai exclusivity. But exclusivity is not the gospel. It is the anti-gospel. Paul reminds them that zeal is not the problem. It's fine to be zealous. We talked about this with our five groups of Hellenism in session three, Brent. It's fine to be zealous. Did God call zealots to be his disciples? Absolutely. Absolutely, he did. It's fine to be zealous about the things that God is doing in the world. However, since the beginning of the story, God has been trying to bless all nations, to bring everyone back to the table. If we are zealous about that kind of inclusivity, it would be a good thing. Now, I'm certainly not talking about some loosey-goosey universalism. Certainly, many evangelical readers will cringe and grab their pitchforks at the frequent usage of my word choice of inclusivity. But it's important to realize from the earliest days of the Christian movement, this has been the heart of the gospel. The Gentiles would not be a part of the story if God had not called people like Paul to fight for the place of all people within the family of God in faith. I can already hear the objections. The gospel is by very nature exclusive, Marty. If this is how you see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the New Testament says you have the wrong gospel. This does not mean truth is relative. It does not mean that everybody is saved. It does not mean that everyone gets to heaven, that morality doesn't matter, and that every other false dichotomy we try to create, is that which is illogical in his premises, is true. It doesn't mean any of those things. What it does mean, And what we mean to say is that since the beginning of the story, where we started in the beginning, Brent, God has invited people to trust the story, trust in his promises. If they will do this, they will find salvation, justification, redemption. This is the gospel. It is the gospel preached beforehand to Abraham. It's the gospel those in the Old Testament had Uh, see Galatians, see Hebrews chapter four. When we get there, we're going to look at lots of references as well as the truth of the new Testament reality in Christ. It's the kingdom of God. It's the, it's the implications and the application of a new King and a what Brent new kingdom, a new kingdom, which is what Jesus called the gospel. Paul's ministry is a ministry of reminding us that these promises and this faith are available to everyone. Period. Wish I could put an exclamation point on Full that. stop. Full stop. There you go. I like that. There are no qualifications to getting access to the gospel. And we struggle with the same struggles as the Galatians. We begin to create spiritual checkpoints that people have to get through in order to access justification. We use our understanding of morality to create new groups that sound an awful lot like the circumcision party of the old. 
groups. Instead of fighting for their place in the family, we find ourselves trying to make sure that everybody understands what an outsider they are. And Paul reminds us all how frustrating this is to the gospel. He says he wishes that he were there in person and not writing a letter so that he could change his tone. And yet again, Paul begins his letter in astonishment. I am astonished that you are turning. He moves to anger, you foolish Galatians, and now finds himself perplexed. How can we do this to the good news of Jesus? How can we miss out on the truth that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female? How can we continue to exchange the truth for a lie of we are in and you are out? It is indeed perplexing. And so after Paul's exasperated statement about being perplexed, he again returns to questioning these Gentile believers who are wanting to convert to Judaism. He wants to know why, from a theological standpoint, they would seek to submit themselves to living under the law as Jews. He makes this case on their own turf, claiming the very law they seek to live under speaks against their current reasoning. So he says the very own measuring stick that you're using tells you that you're wrong. So go ahead and read me the next little paragraph there. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? Ooh, snap. <laughs> For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. Right, so Paul then launches into a discourse built on an allegory. It's a parable of sorts, rabbinically speaking, using pictures and images to make his point. Paul tells us clearly that that's what he's doing. What's your very first line of the next paragraph say, Brent, in the new NIV? These things are being taken figuratively. All right. I love the old NIV. The old NIV used to say, now this may be interpreted allegorically. I like that statement. But go ahead. Give us what, what we got. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Okay, so Paul takes a story from Genesis about Abraham and his two wives, Hagar and Sarai, and uses it as the template for his allegorical parable. He explains that each woman has children. One woman bore children who were born into slavery, and the other woman had children who were born free because they were born of the promise of God. He connects Hagar to the Sinai Covenant and the present city of Jerusalem. I believe it's obvious that Paul is speaking here about which party, Brent? Which mindset? The Judeans. Okay. The, the Shammai Jews. Yes. Or what, what has he been calling them at this point? The what party? The Oh, the circumcision the group. The circumcision party. Okay. Which I bet they just hate. Because if you have this metaphor, Paul's building this metaphor off this scriptural allegory. And he's like, well, there's two women. Well, which woman do they want to be? They're the ones committed to the law. Do they want to be Hagar or do they want to be Sarai? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really uh, line up yeah, they, with what they, you think it would. Exactly. You're, they're like, well, we're the Sarai people. He's like, no, you're not. You're the Hagar because you're born to a, a world of slavery. Your worldview puts you under this curse that we have spoken of in the last episode. He connects Hagar to the Sinai Covenant, the present city of Jerusalem. 
However, Sarah represents a greater truth, a greater narrative. It's the narrative of promise and is the Jerusalem from above, a greater Jerusalem, a transcendent Jerusalem, if you will. So go ahead and keep reading, Brent. I just realized that Sarah's name is not actually in this passage. Correct. Right. You're right. Is that? Okay. She's the woman. Is there anything to that? Uh, You know, I don't know. Now you say that I would, I'm like going back and like double thinking, you know, uh, I'm, I'm wrestling with that all of a sudden because it's like because they know obviously they know who he's talking about so there's a reason he's not naming her by name he does name hagar though and obviously they would know hagar as well Uh right it's interesting that he leaves that name out i I don't know if there's more going on there to that Hmm. is it because what her name is i'm thinking out loud here princess my princess princess i don't know such a good question i don't know all right all right now you brothers and sisters like isaac are children of promise At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So Paul says that these Gentile believers, notice how he calls them. What, Brent, did you pick it up? What did he call them? Uh, Children of the promise. Yes. And what's about the last name, the, the last line there? So oh, children of the free woman. Oh, but, but, but right before that. So uh, brothers and sisters, brothers, calls them brothers. Oh, remember where we have an audience of who? God fearing Gentiles. God fearing Gentiles. I see. So he calls these Theosebes brothers. He says, so brothers, Paul says these Gentile believers calling them brothers, having made the case that through faith, they are members of God's household are allegorically children of Isaac because they were born spiritually of the promise of God. But in the story, God told Abraham that he was to let Hagar go, for he had to build his story upon promise. So let's just sit and and appreciate what Paul just did from a rabbinical standpoint, because it was brilliant. All throughout the letter, Paul has been building a case that the Gentiles do not need to live under the mixat ma'aseh haturah, because they are justified by faith. His main passage for arguing the case has been the story of Abraham and primarily Genesis what, Brent? Genesis 15. 15 through, we could even argue 17 because that's a passage on circumcision, 15 through 17. Paul then decides to use an allegorical picture to bolster his case. And instead of simply creating a picture to suit his needs, he could pitch any, he could do any picture he wants, make up a parable, just like Jesus did. But he pulls his parable, par, parable and the allegory right out of the biblical story which would be stunning in and of itself. Like, that's just a brilliant move, period. But the story Paul chooses isn't just any story. It's actually the same story he's been using to make the theological point he's arguing for. It it, it just blows my mind that he does that. It's incredible. Nevertheless, Paul's point makes sense, and we could move to draw our conclusions. But I find that when we teach Paul's argument using visuals, that uh, it kind of helps us, at least at least some of us. Some of us are very visual learners. So what I want to do is I actually want to look at a, 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 some diagrams that Brent made for us years ago. And I, I, I want to look at those because this really helps us understand, I think, what's going on here. So join me for just a little bit before we close this episode. And this will be in a presentation. Uh, I'm thinking it's probably not going to be in uh, your your chapter markers because the text would be pretty small. Yeah, absolutely. So make sure you pull that up if you're somewhere where you can look on your computer screen or an iPad or even a phone, pull up that presentation and you can can follow us as we go along here. So the first thing we need to be able to see is that covenants are made between two parties. 
and we've talked about this all the way back in session one. Um, uh, I don't want to dive into the details of the covenant. I, I would kind of, I think, re-recommend The Epic of Eden by Sandra Richter. We'll put that in the show notes below. She did a lot of good conversations about covenants. Um, so I don't want to dive into the theology of covenants here. This idea can seem like a no-brainer, and yet I find it's one thing that we seem to lose track of in the conversations kind of revolving around covenantal theology. The covenant applies to the parties, the two parties that make the covenant. So with this in mind, the first biblical covenant that we run into is the Noahic covenant. And we could we could talk about the Adamic covenant, but we're going to start with the Noahic covenant. And for the sake of this covenant, we'll start uh, we'll start there. So when we go back and take a look at the end of the story of Noah, it's clear that makes that God makes this covenant with who, Brent? This covenant is made with everyone. And and even beyond everyone, everything, every living creature. All of creation, right? Like the the covenant of Noah is absolutely all-encompassing. So if you look at that very first slide in our presentation, you'll notice the Noahic covenant is just all-encompassing. Like God makes this covenant with the whole earth and everything in it. The next covenant we might identify is the Abrahamic covenant. And unlike the Noahic covenant, the parties of this covenant are very specific and defined. The Abrahamic covenant is between God and Abraham's descendants, which in his story are twofold. Isaac and Ishmael. So if you go to your next slide in that presentation, you're going to see Abraham and then Isaac and Ishmael just below that. And so by extension, the rest of Abraham's descendants will fall under the same Abrahamic covenant. So the next slide has Jacob and Esau underneath Isaac, and that's your next covenant. So just to make sure we're following along with our reasoning, let's check a few uh, test cases, starting with Esau. Okay. Is Esau under the Noahic covenant, Brent. Yes. He is under the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant is between God and all of creation, right? Is Esau under the Abrahamic covenant? Yes. He is. Okay. Excellent. All right. He's Abraham's grandson. This is excellent. You're following along. Good work, Brent. Uh, The same would apply to Isaac. Would it apply to Ishmael? Yes. Absolutely. He is one of Abraham's descendants. What about Jacob? Uh, Yes. Any other descendants of Abraham? What about if they had any other descendants through Keturah? Would that fall under the Abrahamic covenant? Keturah. Yeah, that was one of his late wives after Sarah's death. Oh, well then, Right there in your yeah. text, Brent Billings. Of course. <laughs> of course it would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it falls under all of Abraham's descendants, right? Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, what, let's, let's try, what about Nahor, the brother of Abraham? Is Nahor under the Noahic covenant, Brent? Yes. Uh, yes, every human being and animal, for that matter, under the Noahic covenant. Is Nahor under the Abrahamic covenant? No. Ah, he's not a descendant of Abraham. Hopefully our listeners are following along in the, the, the diagram. So that means that Abraham's descendants are circumcised, yes? Yes. How about Nahor? No, probably no. not. And not Nahor's descendants? Oh, I wouldn't think so. No, no, you're absolutely right. Okay, good. Hopefully all this makes sense. Uh, and as we add the layers, we'll keep kind of trying to keep our mind on this. I would imagine Nahor's descendants probably were like our crazy Uncle Abraham. <laughs> did you hear about what old brother Abraham did? So eventually, Jacob is going to have 12 sons. And that's your next slide that you're going to look at in your diagram. Those 12 sons will become a nation and will stand at the bottom of Mount Sinai and enter into what we call the Mosaic or the Sinai Covenant. So you'll notice that Brent is changing colors as we go along here. So the the Noahic Covenant in red, the Abrahamic Covenant in green, and now we have a brand new covenant. We have a Sinai Covenant that was with the Jews. 
that all stood at Mount Sinai. So just to make sure we're tracking, let's run through some test cases again. Want to keep our listeners under wraps here. Are the Jews under the Sinai Covenant, Brent? Yes. Yes. Are descendants of Esau under the Sinai Covenant? No. Oh, excellent. They were not present at Mount Sinai. They did not enter into a covenant with God. Only two parties were God and the descendants of Jacob, also known as Israel. So what throws the Jewish world of the New Testament into chaos is the introduction of the God-fearing Gentiles to this diagram. So we'll go to the next slide here. Now, the Gentiles are clearly under the Noahic Covenant. I don't think anybody has a problem seeing the Noahic Covenant. Like, they're clearly under the Noahic Covenant. Uh, there's no debate about that. Even today, you could, you could go, Brent Billings, you could go to a, as a Gentile, you could attend a Jewish synagogue service, and if you wanted to bless them, when you showed up, you could say, I am Ben Noach. Not, my name is Ben, but I am son, Ben Noah. I am a son of Noah. That's how you say that in the Hebrew. Ben Noah is son of Noah. The question is what to do when that Ben Noah wants to become a part of this worshiping body, this assembly. Many Jews in the first century would have argued that covenantally, God is working through the Jewish people, so Gentiles need to take on circumcision and the law it represents and fall under the Sinai Covenant. And so when you go to that next slide there, you see that blue arrow. Uh, this would have been the Shammai worldview. Shammai said, listen, you want to you join the assembly? Become Jewish. You need to step right underneath the Sinai Covenant here and become Jewish. But Paul's argument is revolutionary. Because he argues for something totally unique. So when we end up in this, we, we have a couple options here, actually. We could, we could say that, uh, if you go to your next slide there, you see a red arrow pointing up to, we could just put God-fearing Gentiles there. It's nice and easy, right? Okay, that's good. But Paul argues for something very unique. He argues that they end up being here. Next slide, you see a green arrow putting them in the family of Abraham, Paul's argument is revolutionary. He uses Genesis 15 to claim that the Abrahamic covenant is not based on circumcision, but on faith. He also argues that God's story has always been about God's promises. The promise has always preceded the law, and the story of God has never been about the law that was introduced 430 years later after the promise. This means that it is faith that makes one a member of the Abrahamic community. Even Hillel did not argue this, Brent. He then argues that Gentiles who have faith in the promises of God are Benai Avraham, the sons of Abraham. This claim in Galatians is revolutionary, for it says that a Gentile who lives by faith in the promises of God is more than a son of Noah. He or she is adopted son of Abraham. And so that last slide there in your diagram shows the God-fearing Gentiles adopted into this family of Abraham. Now, do not show up at your local synagogue and claim to be a child of Abraham. They will not appreciate that in the same way that the Apostle Paul did. <laughs> uh, they will appreciate being a son of Noah, but they will not appreciate being a son of Abraham. Uh, still one of the hardest things for an Orthodox Jewish mind to be okay with. The scandal of the gospel is still a scandal in many ways even today. So by extension, it becomes clear through the visuals that we just used that a Jew would not cease to be a Jew 
all descendants of Israel entered into an everlasting covenant with God that remains intact within God's larger story. What Paul's gospel does is to ensure that those Torah-observant lives find their proper place and their priestly calling within God's narrative. The reality of Jesus and the resurrected Christ does not change their calling in the world, but it does invite a whole bunch of adopted children into the family of God, children who have their own unique calling within the family. This is where we're going to turn our attention next in the final Uh, push through the closing of Galatians. I find that putting Paul's argument into pictures can help our mechanical Western minds grasp the argument that Paul is making. Paul is saying that the issue of God's story cannot be the law. The law was given for its own purposes to be the pedagogue, we would say, within the larger story. But the story is not about the law. The story is about the promises of God. He is insistent that circumcision cannot be the marker of God's covenant with Abraham because Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. Abraham was justified by what, Brent Billings? By faith. And faith is what it means to be a true descendant of Abraham. Scandalous case made by Paul here, but that is understanding your New Testament, I believe correctly. All right, we're just one episode away from the pint of bacon. That's right. That's absolutely true. We're going to talk about the pint of bacon. It's now. It's on its way out of the kitchen. It's coming towards the table. What are we going to do? Everybody holds their breath. This is the greatest analogy. <laughs> I've reversed course. Yeah. Last episode, I was thinking it was terrible, but yeah. but I've come back around. Yeah. Hopefully, nobody starts listening to our podcast in the middle of our series on Galatians. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll be back with you next week to finish up Galatians. Galatians.